and welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss the future of the beauty and wellness industries with the people who know them best. I'm your host, Priya Rao, beauty editor at Glossy. And today's guest is beauty industry veteran and chief creative officer at Revlon, Linda Wells. In this episode, we discuss her new makeup line, Flesh, the industry's shift towards inclusivity and transparency, and why incubation is the future for big beauty companies like Revlon. Hope you enjoy the episode. Today on the Glossy Beauty Podcast, we have the Chief Creative Officer at Revlon, Linda Wells, who is a beauty industry veteran. Thank you for being here, Linda. Thank you for having me. You've had so much amazing experience. Tell us how you first became interested in beauty. I think like all girls, I was fascinated with what happened with my mother and in her private area of, you know, transformation and those beautiful fragrances that came out of her room and all the different bottles and jars. And I would always go in there and snoop around and try everything. And then um, when I had my allowance I and my babysitting money, I would take it and buy beauty products. It was always skincare. And things with lemons in it. And I was I was a believer in every single advertisement pitch. So I was a big consumer. How did you know that you wanted to transfer that interest and passion um, into a reporting lens? I can't say I really did. I was not sure what to do after I graduated from college because all I cared about was reading books and drawing. And so suddenly it hit me that, oh, yes, I have to get a job. What about that? And I interviewed at a lot of places, advertising agencies and other things. And I found um, I was hired at Vogue and Vogue had a, an opening as an assistant in the beauty department, which was not really what I was thinking I would do. And as soon as I got there, I thought, oh, you can do this. And this is who knew you could do something that was so much fun and have it be a job? I right. thought a job was supposed to be, you know, hard and struggling and miserable. And I loved it. So it was great right from the beginning. Besides Vogue, you've covered beauty at the New York Times. You founded Allure magazine. How do you think the beauty industry has shifted from when you first started as an assistant at Vogue? It's shifted in almost every way. It's shifted in... In the 90s, everything was about science, and that science was was really the measure of all kinds of performance. And so everybody wanted performance skincare. And now everything is visual. And of course, it's it's everything to relate to social media. And social media has turned everybody into the stars of their own lives and their own movies. And and so they've all everyone has become a media producer, a content producer. And when we when I was at Allure, we would always talk about the day that phones would become picture phones, which sounds so ancient. It sounds like, you know, the I don't know, Andy Griffith's show or something, you know, but but in the nineties, it was in the late nineties, it was still not a reality. And what would that do to the way women perceived themselves and, and presented themselves. And we knew that it would change everything. And we didn't realize that it was not really going to happen with the phone as, an, as, a, as a way to communicate as, through images, but it was really through social media. So that has changed everything. It's made everything speed up. It's made everything visual. It's made beauty become a real force um, and a real business. And so I think it's, it's almost an unrecognizable business from the days I started. In terms of disruption, um, people talk a lot about how social media has really changed the landscape. But, you know, some of the things that we're seeing, you know, influencers testing products is what you were doing and covering at Vogue or The Times or Allure. How do you kind of um, explain the difference between, you know, something that is some that is scientifically reported versus just an influencer trying products? 
I think that it was always important to have both when I was at Allure and Vogue, but it was, even at the times when I was at the times, we weren't even really allowed to use the first person singular unless we were an op-ed reporter. So it was never a personal aspect coming into the writing and reporting. But um, And at Allure, we relied on cosmetic chemists and makeup artists and hairstylists, and we really made them stars. They were behind the scenes, and we gave them a platform to become you know, famous, like Kevin O'Quinn was a was a um, contributor to Allure at the very beginning. And so, and before that, he wasn't that known and and all those other people along with it. So um, we relied on those people as experts and didn't consider ourselves experts as much. But as we spent more time in it, tried more products, um, and and actually I started that uh, Best of Beauty Awards, the Allure Best of Beauty Awards, which were fully decided by editors with confirmation from the other experts in the field. So so we thought that really you needed to rely on experts, whether it was science or experience. And the influencers are their own experts and their own experts from experience. And I think that right now that's trusted more than what we used to think of as experts. So a person who you think is like you um, even if you don't know that person, is more reliable in some ways or more believable than a kind of brand expert. And so I think that that's shifted everything because it's shifted power. I think now, uh, you know, Instagram really is a beauty magazine and a fashion magazine at one. And influencers are the experts that we used to be. And it's democratized beauty. And it's made it a lot more interesting. There are a lot more places that you can find um, reliable information. And you can kind of find the person who's most like you and turn to that person as your own expert. Absolutely. How do you think your time at Allure and knowing this and seeing how the industry has changed has really prepared you for your latest role at Revlon? I think it's bizarrely almost a, a natural transition, which I would not have thought. Um, I think, you know, what I learned at Allure was how to figure out what what products worked and what was good and what consumers want. I learned how to communicate with um, readers, which we now call consumers at Revlon. Um, and I learned about visuals and about writing and about storytelling. And all of those things are what brands really want right now. They want to tell stories and they want to connect with consumers in a way that's um, more human and more real. And so those are all things that have really been important to me. And I think seeing the beauty um, industry and the beauty products from the outside um, as an editor gave me some insight into what people want and how to produce them as an industry person now. So what do you think they want right now? Um, I think they want, well, of course, I think they want flesh because I just started this brand. But um, I think they want something that uh, speaks to them in their own style. They want something that's uncomplicated. They don't want a lot of exaggerated brand promises. I think that product claims and promises can be almost um, a negative. I think people have just don't believe it anymore. So um, the more exaggerated the claim, the more people kind of roll their eyes. And I think they want something that's just kind of going to spark their imagination, um, in terms, particularly in terms of makeup. And I mean, I think they're really two very separate camps. One is the sort of highly... Um, highly made up, very sculpted, very done, layered, transformed face in makeup. And then there's that 
I want to be real, hear my flaws, I accept who I am, I'm unapologetic for that. And that those are the two really opposite um, extremes. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's sort of like pick a lane and you can go with one or the other. So going off of that, what was the impetus for Flash? How did that launch come about? So I was, I started um, at Revlon in February and by, I don't know, July or something, I think the leaders at the company decided they really wanted to do an indie type brand um, and incubate that working with outside manufacturers and suppliers and do something that's very fast to market because clearly we could all see that the indie world was moving very quickly. And how did a big company, um, how could a big company kind of participate in that world? So I kind of held up my hand and said, I'd like to do it. And I'd been thinking about it for a long time. All the years at Allure, I'd been thinking, what would I do if I could do something? So it all happened really quickly. By the end of September, I had the name of the brand, the product assortment, the packaging, and the logo. And um, and then from September to November, we worked with suppliers and came up with the shades. I worked with a makeup artist, and we created the whole line. And in November, I presented it to Ulta. And uh, Ulta decided they wanted to take it exclusively. And then we went into production and we were in the, on the counters or at, in, the, in the store in the end of July. No, the beginning of July, sorry. How do you think the Flash launch was so different? I mean, there's so many different ways that Flash is different from other products within the Rev- Revlon portfolio. But for you, what was the differentiator? What do you think um, it was offering that didn't exist at Revlon before? You know, I, I'm not sure. To, uh, that's a tough question because I think that Revlon is such a huge company. What what we so many things that were different in the sense that it was really a tiny team, very much um, about working really nimbly and quickly and producing something. It was a much. It's a much smaller brand than anything else. It was. Um, we worked with you know as as lean a budget as you could you could work with um, with the enormous support of a company that knows how to do this which was great um, you know we did we did um, media differently we we were digital first and we worked with actually an amazing agency called Look Studios that had come out of Vogue.com and I knew them from I knew some of the people who knew them from Vogue.com and I wanted to work with them right away and they they shot these videos on you know, very quickly and did you know, 30 people in the in the casting. And so that was totally different. We launched on YouTube and in, you know, on Instagram and, and in places that, that, that the company didn't, it wasn't usually the first for the company. So there were a lot of things that I think um, it was a prestige brand at Ulta, which the company did not have in, in that um, environment. So it was, it's different in a lot of ways. But what was true for the company was that it has this great history of founder brands. So when you think about Revlon, it was tra- started by Charles Revson and his brother. Al May was started by a scientist named Al for his wife, May, who had sensitive skin. Elizabeth Arden is, was started by Elizabeth Arden. So there's this history, juicy Juicy Couture fragrances were, you know, by the Juicy Couture girls. So there is this history of, of founder brands at the company that are now uh, well along in their life. But this is a sort of new founder brand, which is fun. What is it like being kind of the face and the figurehead of that? Well, uh, that's not my 
most comfort comfort zone. I don't really. It's very funny to be that. But the, I think that was the other training I got at Allure because at Cunning asked, they wanted the editors to be the, you know, the representation of the of the brand of the magazine so we we know something that was made me sort of uncomfortable I had to kind of deal with like I had to be out there and I had to be in the media and you know on TV and all those things so I think I ha- had training in that and you know in, a, in many ways it's I don't think about it that much honestly it's just sort of one of those things you just do we're going to take a quick break to talk to you all about glossy plus Glossy's membership program gives you full access to exclusive content and premium benefits to help you stay ahead of the rapidly changing beauty industry. As a treat for being one of our first listeners, head to glossy.co slash plus and use the code beautypod to get 20% off an annual subscription. That's code B-E-A-U-T-Y-P-O-D at glossy.co slash plus. Now back to the episode. Linda, in terms of, you know, other beauty companies out there, you know, you were seeing like the L'Oreal's and the Unilever's also kind of try their hand um, at incubation and um, taking some of that indie spirit into bigger companies. What do you think that's about from an industry perspective? I think it's about speed and um, and finding niches and finding ways to do things really quickly um, and responding to being very connected to the consumer in a sort of more one-on-one way. One of the things that we're doing at Flesh is we're meeting with our consumers and we're having these sessions where we f- ask people who follow us on Instagram to come and like sit down with us and tell us what they want, what they like and what they don't like and what they see and how they what they want us to do. And it's a really different way of working. It's very one-on-one. And so I think that that kind of um, connection is part of what... Um, big companies want is that real human connection and um, and big companies have you know big businesses and they make a lot of money but they're this there's an alternative way I think of 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 starting a beauty company and learning a lot and applying that learning to the other you know aspects of the business so in terms of having that kind of connectivity and also data about your customer like who she is what she likes what she wants how is that so different from you know maybe the 90s where people were putting things on shelves and just kind of hoping that something worked. Right. You get immediate feedback. And Instagram is the greatest uh, source of data because, and I think we, you know, there's Reddit and there's, you know, reviews on wherever you're selling, Ulta.com in our case. So, um, and we, I read everything and I really take it to heart and really think about, okay, well, how could we do things differently? And you can respond to that really quickly. And you can also respond to your consumers. And it gives you like an amazing relationship and people feel really heard and validated. So, you know, on Instagram, people, you know, will say something and we'll respond or, you know, well, they'll ask, are you tested on animals? And we'll say, no, we are not. Or, you know, they're like, well, where do I find it? Or how do I get this matched? Or where's the store? And we'll ask them to DM us. So we can really respond to consumers in a way that didn't ever happen before. In terms of, you know, that kind of connectivity, you know, Flesh was also very much part of this inclusive, diverse um, movement that we're kind of in with the expansive shade range. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I named the brand Flesh, which, of course, caused a lot of drama and people were very worked up about it. And some people thought it was a makeup line for zombies. And um, and 
and but I think that when you name something that it meant something to me, which was skin color and skin, and how um, this brand needed to be really true to skin. And once you declare that, you had better have all the foundations that you need to cover every single skin tone. So that we worked really long and hard on. And it's become, um, you know, a big, big movement in the industry. And it's really required. And it's sometimes amazing that it took this long to get here. But here we are. And I think that one of the good things about it is it's now really almost should go without saying it's not it's not a reason to be anymore. It's um, it's like you must have all these shades of um, foundation. So um, I think that as we go forward, it was something that we talked a lot about at the beginning of Flesh. But as we go forward, I think it's not going to be the main purpose of the line. It's going to be just a given. But what we did with Flesh 2 is not just do all the foundation shades, and um, which was a struggle and hard because when you get to the dark shades, sometimes they can look ashy on the skin and there are certain ingredients that do that. So some brands can have all the numbers of shades, but certain shades don't look good. And if they don't look good, then it doesn't count for anything. But what we also wanted to do was make sure that we had all the highlighters for every skin tone and all the nude lipsticks for every nude lipstick. There isn't just one nude lipstick, but that's to me just what you have to do. That's a, that's a requirement now in beauty. How did the customer react and respond, especially the Ulta customer where you guys are exclusive? Um, they're very much about that. So what was the response like? There was so much happiness. It was really, it's it's amazing how personal beauty is. That's why I've always been interested in beauty is it's so personal and it taps into something that is very raw in people and very people feel insecure about and there's a lot of tension. And so anytime you have that, it's a very hot topic. And so when it came to foundations, people felt like they were finally being recognized as mattering, which is, which of course everyone knows that they matter, but to be, to have to go to a, a counter and see nothing for your skin color is a very, um, it's a harsh and damaging experience. And it's tough for people to feel like they are beautiful if they're not included. And and I feel that way about everything, whether it's about age and size and skin color. It's like you want to be included in part of the conversation and part of the experience. So we got really positive feedback from women of all skin colors. I mean, there were a lot of women in the super light range who were like, I've never been able to find a foundation that, that's right for my pale skin. So it was a really positive thing um, across the whole spectrum of skin colors. What do you think um, is up next for Flash? Um, world domination. And um, besides that, uh, we are, you know, I mentioned we're talking to our customers. We, we're um making new products for 2019 and 2020 right now that are very much connected to some of the things that they said they want. And it's too soon to say what that is, but um, we're working on that. And um, we have some terrific holiday products out that are um, people that are now selling in the top five, which is so fantastic. Three new holiday products, then they're already in the top five. So, and one of them is a flesh pot. We have two flesh pot 
eye gels, eye glosses, which was a surprising hit product for us. That's our number one product. And it's this glossy, glimmery um, gel that goes on your eyelids, but also on your cheeks and your lips. So we had um, one in the original collection. And then now we have one that's a sheer red and one that's a champagne color. And people love them and they love their versatility and they're really sensual and gorgeous. So we're working on that. And uh, we're building our Instagram following and our website and we're doing email marketing and I'm writing the emails and so is, so is our social media director. So we're really totally hands-on and doing everything. What is that like, kind of like owning the marketing piece as well, you know, writing those emails and making sure that they connect with that customer um, who you know so much about now? It's so much fun. I mean, I just, I love it. I feel like it's it's just so direct and it's so immediate and you get such instant responses. And I'm also fascinated by the negative responses. You know, when we came out and with this name Flesh and people were very upset about the name, I kind of went through different Instagrams and when they would say, what is this makeup brand? You know, was it invented for Hannibal Lecter? And I was like, like, and I would just like all those like negative comments. And um, it's, it's, it's fantastic. There's nothing better. I mean, I love going to the Ulta store and talking to consumers and talking to the saleswomen. And I tend to go after Soul Cycle on the weekends, and that's not my best look with sweaty hair and, you know, but, um, but I, it's a really great thing to have that one-on-one connection. Why do you think that um, Ulta was the right partner for you guys and really having that kind of physical retail experience as well? And we are seeing that people discover things online and in Instagram, but then um, they need, they really like going to a brick and mortar to touch and feel and experience. And there's a kind of circular uh, um, consumer journey that's important. And Ulta is, there's so many things I like about Ulta. One is that they're such a strong um, beauty retailer. I mean, it's all things beauty all in one place. So they have mass and they have prestige in one place. The company Revlon had uh, has brands in the mass side of it. They have fragrances in the prestige side. So it was a great relationship for us. I knew the people at Ulta because I, did, I had done programs with them when I was at Allure. And I love their enthusiasm and their openness. And it's a very democratic world because they combine mass and prestige. And it's something that when I was at Allure, we combined mass and prestige um, products in a single story, which was heresy at the, in the early days of Allure. And the companies couldn't stand it and couldn't understand, you know, the, personally, the prestige companies were very upset. But I feel like that's the way people shop. And that's the reality. And there's something about it that's very, it's so friendly. And beauty can be intimidating. So I like the open and joyful friendliness of it. And I kind of think of it as a sort of the new community center in a way. It's a place where people gather and um, connect. And women are so connected by beauty. So um, it felt like a really good place for so many reasons. Well, it sounds like you have definitely have your hands full with flesh. But what other what other things fall under your purview at Revlon? So I work on um, all the brands at Revlon and in a visual on visuals and on copy. So um, so it's anything that's creative. And so I will. You work on the what we call the wall, which is the the area that Revlon and Almay and some of the other brands they sell at the at the in the mass market is that whole wall, which is a very strong form of communication. So I'll work on writing for that, working with the creative directors in um, coming up with visuals and and selecting those and and showing that and doing 
as much storytelling as you can in a situation like that. I'm working on the new websites for the brands and um, bringing in a lot of people from editorial to do some writing and visuals, which is a lot of fun, and um, packaging and ads and, um, you know, kind of anything that's creative. What do you think, um, in terms of packaging, you know, people are talking a lot about that, that that's just as much, just as important as the product itself. How, um, why do you think that's happening right now? And why do you think that um, displaying your product and messaging your product is just as important as the product itself? It's part of it, I think, is the factor of social media, and particularly Instagram, that everything's so visual. And, um, and I think that people really find that packaging is a part of their, it's almost as if it's part of their style and they want to find their own style in the packaging. So it's almost like fashion and people look at, at the packaging and they want to photograph it and they want to post it and they want to feel like it speaks to them and represents them. So it's a very different situation than it was when I started in beauty. Packaging is hugely, packaging has always been important, but it was private for the most part. Other than pulling out a lipstick at a table, it was mostly a private experience. Now it's, everything is public. So um, even the private things are public. So it's a way of really expressing who you are. And in conversations with consumers, they've told us that that the packaging represents, you know, does it match their own personal brand? And they think of themselves as a brand and then the packaging as a brand. So it's a fascinating kind of um, human connection to a brand. What about um, kind of helping some of your older brands within the Revlon portfolio, like Revlon itself or Alme? How do you help them kind of reestablish their message or um, point of view in this new market? It, and it, we're all working on this together right now at the company. And I think that we all recognize that there are lots of different ways to express a brand. So you can do things on Instagram differently than you would do in a television ad. And I think it's, it's really, I think most of it comes down to humanizing the brands and giving them a sense of personality and a, and a story to tell. And they all have stories to tell because they all really do come from individuals. And there's great heritage. So for instance, with Revlon, it has this great heritage of the Charlie girl who was the first woman um, who was, it was a, it was a fragrance for working women, but it never really said that in, in those certain terms. It was a, a very individual fragrance. It was the first woman who wore trousers in an, in a beauty ad. So there are all those things that it represented sort of female independence at a time that that was really important in the seventies. And finding that and then they had this fantastic ad campaign in the late 80s early 90s called the most unforgettable women in the world wear revlon so it's taking those threads and then how do you express that today and that's where we came up with live boldly which is this statement about not only about makeup and you know showing your best self but it's also standing for something and bringing women together and so it's finding the 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 heritage of the brands and then connecting that to a current and meaningful message, and then telling lots of different stories and having lots of people tell those stories. What do you think is more challenging? Is it you know starting a brand from the get, from the very, very beginning, day one, or kind of reestablishing and bringing that history to a present point of view? You know, I think they're both, they both have their, you know, challenges. It's, it's hard to start a brand because you need to have brand awareness and brand recognition. And 
I think, okay, we did that already. Now we're now we've established flesh, but you realize it takes a long time to get people to know what a brand is and then once they've got that to then buy something for the brand. It's just it's a longer process and people's attention is fractured. So it's hard to do that. It's also um, but it's also great because you also have an empty slate and you can invent what you want to invent and start it and define it in your own way. And I think that with an established brand, it's continually um, connecting with consumers in fresh ways and um, coming out with new products and and um, innovating all the time, which, you know, the company has had a great you know history of doing that with Revlon and Alme and, and Elizabeth Arden and the other brands. So it's, so it's, but it's a constant, you're never finished. It's never like, okay, now we can relax for a second. It's, it's, there's a, I think that's the biggest change in, in beauty right now is the speed that everybody, um, connects with new messages and also wants the next new message. It's like, okay, now what? What's next and next and next? Absolutely. Do you think there'll be more incubation or can you hint at any more incubation that'll happen at Revlon or new new brands themselves? I think that we're really all interested in what we can do and how we can innovate and how the, what we, you know, what the possibilities are. So I would, you know, I think that there's a real interest in this in the company, but I can't hint at anything other than that. Absolutely. Um, Linda, what other kind of trends or kind of categories besides like speed itself and social media are you interested in personally? Um, You know, a lot of people talk about wellness. A lot of people are talking about cannabis. Like there's a lot going on um, from an industry perspective. What's interesting you? I do think that the connection um, between wellness and uh, and beauty is fascinating, and I think that it can be overstated, as we can see. You know, there's been a lot of negative press lately about claims that have been exaggerated, and we have to be thoughtful about that. But one of the things that really interests me a lot right now is um, the connection between sleep and beauty, mm-hmm. and how what can beauty products and things do to um, enhance and support that. You know, I feel like that's, it was so diminished, the importance of sleep in the 90s, like, oh, I don't sleep, I I sleep four hours a night. And, you know, Martha Stewart was like up at five and, you know, building sets and you felt like such a, so inadequate and such a slacker if you weren't that person. But I think that now people are realizing that sleep is one of the greatest things you can do for everything, for your health, for your looks, for your mood, for your, you know, happiness. And so I think there'll be more connection between beauty and sleep. I'm interested in where that goes. Absolutely. And I guess lastly, Linda, that kind of ties into what we're seeing a little bit from a worldview. You know, people are stressed out. People want more self-care, want more wellness in their life. Um, Do you think that that beauty and wellness are kind of interchangeable at this point? I think that beauty and wellness are, yes. I think that, you know, some things that in beauty are not very well and not very healthy and not very good for you. And I think that uh, really an obsession with beauty is a really unhealthy thing. So, and we see that in, you know, body obsession and things like that. But I think that people are becoming kinder to themselves and more forgiving of themselves and 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 sort of there's that whole notion of self-compassion which I think is really important and and the and I and I think the beauty is moving in the right direction in terms of being less judgmental and less exclusive and more inclusive in every way so in a sort of bigger philosophical way I think the beauty is moving in the right direction and so is our culture and in a term, terms of products I just think there are more things that are intended to make you feel good and not intended necessarily to change who you are great. Thank you so much, Linda. It was wonderful having you today. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. 
A special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. If you enjoy the Glossy Beauty Podcast and aren't a Glossy Plus subscriber yet, it's time to consider joining to get access to all of Glossy's content, member events, ticket discounts, Slack chats, and more. Head to glossy.co slash plus and use the code PRIYA25, P-R-I-Y-A 25 for 25% off an annual subscription. Don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Beauty Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and leave us any feedback you have.